Please take your Bibles and turn with me back to our first reading in the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. And we continue this afternoon in our exposition as we have been preaching our way piece by piece through this prophecy of Isaiah. We come uh, this afternoon to chapter 12 and to the first half of that chapter, verses 1 to 3. So our text is Isaiah 12, verses 1 to 3. The title of the sermon is God is my salvation. We read, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah chapter 12 is one of those passages that the Lord's people should love to revisit again and again and again and again. It is precious to us. All that is contained and compacted within the brevity of these six verses, this, this compact declaration of response to, to the gospel. If we read it enough, indeed, if we memorize it, it's short enough. Um, it furnishes us with language, doesn't it? Language to employ in our prayers, language to employ in our conversation, as well as language so suited to our meditations and the affectionate exercise of our hearts uh, before the Lord. You'll note readily as you look at chapter 12, though brief, it, it falls into to two parts. You have verses 1 to 3, which we're considering this afternoon, and then verses 4 to 6, which if we're spared, we'll consider next Lord's Day. And the division is easy to recognize because you have the repetition of these words at the beginning of verse 1, and in that day. And then again in verse 4, and in that day shall ye say. And this really shows us as well that it's chapter 12 is a continuation of everything that we've been hearing in chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 10, we had the same language, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. And then we've gone on to hear all that that uh, involves. And so there's a continuation into chapter 12 on this same theme. So what does that mean for us? Well, if we step back and just recall briefly uh, the context, uh, the Lord speaking through Isaiah has been uh, telling us of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've, we've heard about this child that's going to be born, the son that's going to be given, his names, the fact that the government will be placed upon his shoulders, that his kingdom uh, will continue to advance forever. We saw that in chapter 9. We've seen more in, in chapter 11. Uh, he speaks about in that day that there's going to be this rod that rises out of the, of the root of Jesse. And here too is a description of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we saw last week in verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 10 and following, is that we have this depiction of the, the, the at the time, the coming reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's describing what's going to happen after the coming of the Messiah and during his glorious reign. And so we noted there that in chapter 11, we're given... Um, 
we're given a depiction of what is later described in the New Testament in Romans chapter 11. So Romans 11 is that passage where we're told that the Jews have been cut off uh, from the stock of the church because of unbelief. That there's a remnant that, that will be saved, but by and large, they've been cut off. The, the, the Gentiles, the wild branch has been grafted in, but that there's a day coming when the Lord is going to be pleased to graft uh, the, the Jewish branch back into uh, the church. And we, when preaching through that portion uh, a couple of years ago, probably we, we spent some time, we slowed down and expounded. What does this mean? What is it saying? How do we know? What are the implications? And so on and so forth. So most of you who have been with us know exactly what Romans 11 is about. And Westminster Larger Catechism refers to it in question 191, this, what lies future to us yet in the, the, the engrafting of the Jews, what Romans 11 describes as all Israel being saved, describes it as being life from the dead, it describes with it the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in. So this, is, this fits very snugly uh, with wit, within the, the context of everything else we read about the coming kingdom in the New Testament, in the Gospels, throughout the prophets, all through the Psalms, going all the way back into the Pentateuch and so on. It's related to what we think of in theological jargon as the post-millennial glory that is yet to come. The promise of great prosperity for the gospel and significant advance for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the discipling of the nations under the one who has all power and authority in heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus himself. And so, we were looking at how that's being um, predicted already here in, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, as well as many other places throughout the prophets. So that's kind of the, the context that carries over into chapter 12. So what, what we find in chapter 12 in the first instance is are, are words that are, that are to be found in the mouth of the Jewish now converted people. And so it's first of all the description of the people of Israel upon return to the Messiah and salvation and deliverance in him and the jubilation over that um, world-transforming recovery that the Lord has, has promised in the days to come. So that's the first thing. That's the immediate context of chapter 12. That's what's being described, right? That's that's, um, that's why it says, and in that day, thou shalt say. What day? Well, the day we've just been hearing about in, in, in chapter 11. In that day, in the fulfillment of all that's described in chapter 11, this language will be found in the mouth of Israel who's been recovered in the gospel. However, we can also say that, that Isaiah chapter 12 is applicable to anyone and everyone under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of his gospel uh, proclamation. So it's applicable wherever the gospel is found, wherever the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is found. It's not as if it is uh, exclusive or unique in the true definition of that word, unique. It's not unique merely to Israel. And so it's, it's language that is descriptive of all of the believing people of God. 
and descriptive of those who live today and enjoying the riches of grace that are to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So both of these things are true. It's interesting that this, uh, this declaration of praise comes right on the heels of chapter 11. Now just think with me for a second and how we see this biblical pattern. Right? There is Israel and they're in bondage in Egypt and they spend four centuries there. And then the Lord sends Moses and the Lord comes and he delivers them. And they're brought out with a strong arm and the Lord parts the Red Sea and they cross over on dry land and Pharaoh and his chariots are all destroyed and there's salvation, there's redemption. What do they do on the far side of the Red Sea? They do what's described in Exodus 15. They lift up their voices in praise for the remarkable, overwhelming, you know, humanly unpredictable deliverance and salvation that the Lord gave them. What do we find later on when the Lord comes to his people who have been in exile? Babylonian exile for 70 years, all of the difficulty. You know, they left Jerusalem with everything, you know, obliterated and in tatters and the temple destroyed and their country sacked and the best and brightest hauled off and so on. So they're in exile. When they return from exile, what do we find? we find the kind of praise described in Psalm 126. Right, we noted that last week when it speaks about how the Lord has delivered us from bondage. And they say, it's as if we dreamed. It was, it was too good to be true to us. And the nations are saying, the Lord's done great things for you. And they're saying of themselves, the Lord has done great things for us whereof he's made us glad, and so on. It's the same pattern that you see in that, in that particular context. Now you come, and I realize this is a much longer introduction than normal, but we'll move on in just a second. You come to Romans 11, and the Lord, under divine inspiration, gives us a prophetic word about what is yet future regarding the salvation of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles. And it is cataclysmic, what is being described. Immediately on the heels of that, what's the language we have? Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Who hath first given to him that it should be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Right? The response of Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit to what he's just said in Romans 11 is that doxology, if you will, declaration of praise. And so you come to this parallel in Isaiah and we find something similar in chapter 11, and then there's this declaration of praise that comes immediately on the heels of it in chapter 12. So I'm helping you connect the dots in terms of parallels and themes and context and so on and so forth. Well, what does Christ's reign and the gospel bring, whether to the Jews or the Gentiles or whoever? What does Christ's reign and gospel bring? Well, that's described here in our passage. And we'll note that it brings three things in these three verses. First of all, it brings comfort. 
First of all, it brings comfort. Verse 1, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. So he says, In that day thou shalt say, I will praise thee. And so it's a voice of praise. What are, we, what are we noting? Pardon. Children, you can follow this. Pardon produces praise. Always and everywhere. Pardon for sin produces praise to the Savior. It's praise. This is the suitable response. And it's, it's a response to what? We're told in verse 1. It's a response to the fact that God's anger has been turned away and that instead he has comforted them. How often do we see this? You know, I'll give you one example. Psalm 30, we sing it in verse 5. For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. It's that same pattern. His anger is turned away. And you think in terms of the immediate context of this passage, right? The Lord's anger at the Jewish people, at Israel. They have crucified the Son of God. They have stood and betrayed him, and they have rejected and repudiated his person and his preaching. They have done all they could to bring false witnesses and to falsely accuse him. They have gone into cahoots with, uh, with Pilate and the Roman government. And then they stood in the face of all of this and cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and upon our children. And in a sense, that, that cry was answered. They had crucified the son of the living God. And they dug in their heels. And the fierce form of persecution that the church initially faced was from Israel itself. And it continued to be so in part for the first hundred years into the, into the second century, along with the persecution from the Gentile Roman government and so on and so forth. But there was a continued hatred not just a flash in the pan. We crucified him, and now we move on. There was an enduring opposition and has been an enduring opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say in the language of Scripture, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. His anger, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You see it in Providence as well as in Scripture. 70 AD, the Lord drops the hammer. Some of the most you know, you read Josephus and others on this, some of the most horrific descriptions anyone can read about what happened to Jerusalem when Titus rolled in in 70 AD. You see it in terms of the judicial blindness that belongs to the Jews at large as a whole, the hardness of their hearts, the divine displeasure that is seen in that. And yet here the Lord is saying, there's a day coming in that day. Thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me. Thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. A day when 
there's a transition from few being saved to all being saved. Right? During the bulk of this whole period after the ascension of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament was comprised largely, mostly of Jews with a few you know, remnant of Gentiles brought in. The New Testament era is largely comprised of Gentiles with a few remnant of Jews that are brought in. There's a day coming in which we will go from few Jews saved to all, if you will. It's not to say every individual Jew, but in mass. It will be as life from, from the dead. You go back and listen to the sermons on Romans 11 with, with regards to that. They're saying the anger has been turned away and the Lord has come to, to, to comfort us. Now, it's true in that context. It's also true generally to the Christian, including Gentile Christians, in the day in which we live. You notice here the pronouns, I will praise thee, angry with me, thou comfortest me, right? It's very personal. It's very direct. It's intimate. It's specific. It's individual. It's not just speaking generally, but it's also applied particularly to individual souls. And it's true throughout uh, the people of God. This is the mercy, the mercy that is found in pardoning sin. God's sovereign provision. If thou, Psalm 130, if thou shouldst mark our iniquities, who could stand? Rhetorical question, answer, no one. Thou shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? No one. But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Here is pardoning mercy that the Lord is bringing, and it's his own provision. What does this do? It reinforces in our own minds, doesn't it? God is angry with sinners. God is angry with sinners. Paul speaks about, you know, the Gentile Christians even, how they were under the wrath of God prior to being converted. They were living, and every sinner is, living under the wrath of God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Isaiah's had something to say about this. In Isaiah 5, verse 25, you can remember that far back, therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. And he has stretched forth his hand against them and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God is angry at sinners. There's a side of us that would like to either sidestep that or downplay that or not speak about that, but it is a disservice to souls to be like the ostrich that hides our head in the ground, buries our head in the ground, it's a mercy to be told what is real, to be given a reality check, to be made aware of the predicament in which we find ourselves outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have broken his law. We have de defied our creator. We have dishonored his name. We have lived our lives in rebellion against him and in disobedience to him. And we are children left to ourselves. We would be children of wrath. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth 
and unrighteousness. So we begin there. The Lord is angry with sinners. There is very bad news in the Word of God, as well as exquisitely glorious good news. And so there's the bad news. God's angry with sinners. Some of you are tempted to say, well, we know this in theory. I know it on paper. I'm not going to deny it overtly, but you haven't believed it. You haven't taken it on board. You say, well, I know that's the true, that's what the Bible says, and I believe the true religion, and so on and so forth. But if you, if you, if you, actually, if you actually took on board these things, came under the power of these things, some of you would be in a very different place in terms of saying, forget everything else in the world and in life and whatever else. I got one thing on my mind, and that is, I need a Savior. There has to be a need and a sense of that need for the Savior. But it says that the anger is appeased. Thine anger is turned away. His anger is pacified. It's appeased. He's satisfied in that. How does this take place? It doesn't take place through anything that Israel does or that Gentile believers do or any other son and daughter of Adam could do. It's all wrapped up in the one of whom we've heard in chapter 11, in chapter 10, in chapter 9. It's all to be found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This deliverance from the wrath to come never comes on from our side. It never comes from anything we do or anyone that anyone could do. God supplies it. God provides it. God bestows it in the abundance of his grace. This is the gospel. This is the Lord coming and saying, I will do for you and with you what you could never do for yourselves. I'll provide it. That's what we read about in, in Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is the Lord's own provision. He is able to forgive his grace abounds, it superabounds far above and beyond the greatest of all sins. If that's true for those who crucified the Lord of glory with their own hands, it's true for every sinner in need of a Savior, including ourselves. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is both willing and able to do it. He's willing and able to save. He's willing and able to cleanse from all sin, to pardon all sin, to remove all guilt for sin because of what his son has done in appeasing his wrath and paying the penalty and punishment as the substitute in the place of his people. Well, for those who come under this, for those who are recipients of it by God's grace, and goodness for those who are brought into the experience of this there is comfort unparalleled and thou comfortest me we go from peace with God which is what Christ secures for us so that no longer enmity war hostility between our soul and God but Christ has, a, has, has established through his cross work peace with God. And that peace with God, where there's no enmity, results in the peace of God. 
which is shed abroad in the souls of the Lord's people. And that peace, that, that internal and experiential peace of God brings with it the soothing of the soul and a consolation that, as I said, is unparalleled. You think of all that you deem comforting. When you're sad, when you're perplexed, you're whatever. What is it that's especially comforting? So that conjures up all sorts of things. I mean, I'm not going to list off possibilities because there's too many of them. You all have different ones. But it conjures up an idea. That's, that's a point of reference for us. It's not the point, but it's a point of reference. The Lord comes by the Holy Spirit and grants us above and beyond anything that those other temporal comforts could provide. I mean, the Lord comes in days of Jeremiah and he's saying, what have you done? You have forsaken the fountain of living waters and you have hewn for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He is the fountain of comfort and consolation. And the application of the gospel to our souls, coming and laying hold of Christ by faith, being brought into a saving union and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ results in comfort. Comfort for our souls in time and an eternal consolation in time to come. Secondly, so what does Christ's reigning gospel bring? It brings comfort. It brings, secondly, salvation. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. So the first word is behold. It's saying, look at this. In the language of Psalm 126, it's as if we dreamed. Look at this. See this. See what? Two times in that one verse, God is my salvation. First it says, God is my salvation. At the end of the verse, he also is become my salvation. Who's the he? The he is the Lord. The he is Jehovah. And what's happening here is, of course, Jehovah saves. The Lord our Savior. That's actually the word Jesus, isn't it? He's named Jesus, as Matthew 1 tells us, because he's the one who came to save his people from their sins. What's happening? Christ is being recognized as Jehovah and as the Savior of his own people. We have we have, if you will, in the language of another prophet, they look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn. Right? There's this, the, the, the veil that now exists, as Paul says, over the eyes of, of the bulk of the Jewish people in the reading of the law, their inability to see, removed. The veil of unbelief removed, and now faith, able to see, that this Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He's the only Redeemer. And He is God Himself incarnate, who has come to save His people from their sins. 
And there is glory in this salvation. You'll notice that it says, I will trust thee and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. I will trust and not be afraid. Why? Because fear and faith are opposites. Wherever faith is growing, fear is diminishing. Where, where faith is low, then, then fear is, is um, ascending. And so it's, we, will, we will trust in the Lord. Well, faith, we have faith in him. And we're not afraid because Jehovah himself is our strength. We are the epitome of weakness. He is the epitome of omnipotence. And his omnipotence is now our strength. And he is our song, it says. Now, I wish we had time just to, just, just to settle there. We don't, by a long shot. God is our song in the gospel. You take that home, tuck it in your pocket, meditate, it, meditate on it as you have time in, in the week ahead. Here we go from few being saved to we go from those who are fearful and few to, to those who are, have faith and who are many. And this, the foundation is God himself. God is salvation. He is the source and the provider and the, the means and everything, top to bottom. He is God, our Savior. This is something, of course, the Jews knew. They knew it. You know, they could read, they sang it every day in the Psalms, they could read about it, they could see it depicted in all the ceremonies and so on. The Gentiles are brought in in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and they come to see it, we come to see it, that he is our only salvation. We're not our salvation. We can't save ourselves. No one else can. A better economy and money and education and 50 million other things, none of those are our salvation Jehovah alone is our salvation. So in the first instance, in terms of the context, there's a coming. To use the language of Scripture, all Israel will be saved. Salvation. This is what comes. God our Savior. And it's true, of course, the people of God at large. Trust, faith, confidence. Right? Trust includes this confidence in something, someone else. Confidence for what is past, our sins in the past. Confidence for the present so that we're led to live by faith in the Son of God. Confidence for the future as well. Right? There, there, this is part of what trust entails. John G. Payton, when he was in the Outer Hebrides, Vanuatu, 19th century Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian missionary. You'll, you'll have, most, most in our congregation will have read the, the autobiography, and you'll recall he's, um, he's talking about the fact that he, he, there's no word for faith. So he's trying to translate, he's trying to preach and translate the scriptures into the language of the native people. No word in the native language for faith. And he's sitting there one day, and someone comes in and says, Oh, you have your feet up, and so on. You got an idea. And so he transferred all of his weight to this chair. He sat back, leaned heavily against the back of the chair, put all of his weight into, the, into that chair. And he said, what am I doing? Describe it for me in your words, in your language. What am I doing? And so, you know, in one way or another, they, they basically describe, well, you're trusting the chair to support you, you know, you're, that it'll hold you up. You're going you know, to keep you from falling. You're, you're putting your, 
your weight into it, and so on and so forth. And he said, bingo, this is it. He got the word. He, he found the word, the, the kind of word that they would use to help them to begin to understand at least one dimension of what faith uh, entails, depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ without the least dependence upon ourselves or our own re resources. They said, we, we, we're trusting. I will trust and not be afraid. Trust in the Lord based on the promises of the Lord. Well, quickly here, let me just think about this in terms of a few, a handful of different ways or cases in which this is expressed. We have some who trust without fear. So there are those numbered among the people of God who have faith and who are trusting the Lord without fear. And the Lord grants that in his mercy and there's growth and maturity and so on and blessing and all that comes with that, ministry of the Holy Spirit, fruit, etc. And the Lord gives to his people. It's a sweetness. There's confidence in him. Zero confidence in ourselves. And an absence of, of fear. So that's one bucket. We can see that. That's what's described in our passage. But then there are, there are some who trust in the Lord and do fear. Now we recognize there's a correlation between degrees of faith and fear. We've noted that already. But there are those who trust in the Lord, who have true faith in the Savior, and yet who do fear. They believe the Bible. Perhaps you, you believe the Bible. You believe that it's the word of God, that it gives us the true religion. If I were to ask you, quiz you, cross-examine you on anything in this word, I said, come to promise after promise. You know, you would say with all your heart, it's true, it's true, undeniably true. What God has said is true in these promises. But as soon as we begin to speak about that promise applied to your soul, things change. And you can describe it in a lot of different ways. Confidence in the Bible, not confidence. Confidence in ourselves or in our state or in our condition or et cetera, et cetera. But there's this challenge. Those who, are, who really do have faith and who are trusting but are still fearful. And this, this requires, doesn't it, um, care and, and um, uh, sensitivity and uh, winsomeness and uh, kindness and so on, but ultimately it's bringing us back to the fact that God himself is our salvation. Nothing beyond him or outside of him, and there's nothing missing within him. That our, our confidence has to be grounded in who he is and what he has done and in what he has promised and the reliability of his word and coming, in, and coming to him for all of that and more. So that's the second bucket. Then there are those who don't, uh, who don't trust and are afraid. So there's, there's souls who, who don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not trusting in the Lord, and they are scared. They're fearful. And that's actually rational. I'm not saying it's enjoyable, but it is rational. 
To be outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and not in a saving relationship with him is to be in a terrifying place. It's right to be afraid in those circumstances. To know that we don't have faith should lead to, a, to discomfort. You see it on the last day. I was, I was actually using this. My mind went to this and preaching in the open air on Friday. And look at the end. And there are those who have no faith in Christ and have rebelled against him. And what are they doing on the last day? Sheer terror. They're running down into the cracks and caves and, 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 bats and where the bats and moles are and crying out for the rocks to fall on them to shield them from the countenance of the wrath of the Lamb of God. That's right, actually. What's needed in that? Well, what, what's needed is for you, if you find yourself in, the, in that condition this afternoon, that fear is accentuating your need, sin and need for a Savior. And it can be wind to your back or wind in your sails. Whatever the case, it needs to bring you to the Savior. It's no good to say, I don't have faith, I'm not trusting, and I'm, and I'm afraid. That's, you can't stay there. Right? There is a refuge into which we run. There is a strong tower into which we run. There is a Savior to whom we run, who is willing, indeed calling us, beseeching us to come to him and to receive from him with the assurance that he'll never cast out any who do come to him. You have to be driven to the Savior. The fourth category is those uh, who, who don't trust and who are not afraid. While the previous bucket was rational, though uncomfortable, this category of person is absolutely insane. To not trust and to not be afraid. That's spiritual insanity. That is la-la land, make-believe, playing games, suppressing the truth, fooling oneself. And if you find yourself here this afternoon and the Lord's coming to you in the ministry of his word and he's speaking into your own soul and you say, that, that's me. I don't trust and I don't fear. It's because you don't care. And so the Lord is coming with a wake-up call to you to arouse you out of your sleepy slumber, to awaken you out of your sleepy slumber. The Lord is coming and is saying, the reign and gospel of Jesus Christ brings with it salvation. And the door is flung wide open in the offers of that salvation to needy sinners such as yourself. Oh, that God would bring you to say, I am a savior. Jesus is the only, I am a sinner. Jesus is the only savior. And to flee for refuge to him. Thirdly, and quickly, there is joy. The reign of Christ and the gospel brings joy. The sin of not rejoicing 
is just as sinful as the sin of not repenting. Not rejoicing is akin to not repenting. Notice it says in verse 3, therefore, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Right? This is a conclusion. This, is, this, this, this joy of drawing water out of the wells of salvation is actually flowing from what verses 1 and 2 have said. And you see that same thing elsewhere. We have joy and peace in believing and so on. Right? Joy comes in the wake of faith and so on. And so it's with joy that they draw water out of the well of salvation. We read from John 4, and I don't need to go through all of that again, and I'm not going to, but the woman at the well, let me just point you back to verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said unto her, the Samaritan woman, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. That is Jacob's well. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Or you think of the words of Jesus at the end of the feast a few chapters later. John 7 verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. The salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ are as wells of water in a dry land. And it is with sheer joy that we draw up the waters of that well. Isaiah has a lot to say about water. I mean, you think of chapter 41, verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none. Their tongue faileth for, for, for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake in them. I will open rivers of high places and fountains in the midst of valleys. will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. You know super well the language of Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye by and eat. You think of same chapter, verse 10. We could go on and on. Right? It's the same, same imagery is being employed here in chapter 12. The wells of salvation found in the fountain himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a matter of pure joy to draw the water of salvation from him who is the fountain. Right? This is the fruit of it is joy. Jesus tells his disciples, you know, I've come to make your joy full. My joy is going to be in you and be your joy. He goes to prayer in chapter 17 of John and prays that the Father would give his joy uh, to abide in his people and so on. This joy of the Lord is the strength of the Lord. The water is Christ and his benefits, Christ and all of the gospel benefits that are to be found in him. The way is the drawing up of that water. The buckets, if you will, with which we draw are the gospel ordinances that he's given to us. It's through the foolishness of preaching. He's given us ordinances in which we, we, we come to, to see and behold and, and partake of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We sing of this in Psalm 84, you know, with the well there. 
the order, the ordinary way, as our catechism tells us, the ordinary way of communicating Christ and his benefits. The ordinary way of communicating Christ and his benefits is through divinely appointed ordinances. We speak of the means of grace. What does that mean? Means of grace. It's the, the vehicles, if you will, the instruments, the way in which the Lord has appointed by his spirit to convey grace. How are they going to hear without a preacher? And how are they going to believe in what they haven't heard? Romans 10 and many other passages like that. But let's not forget, those are ordinances with which or through which we are brought Christ himself. Christ is the water. He is the well of water, the fountain of living waters himself. The ordinances are the means through which we draw up that water. Professor John Murray said this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the essence is, is, is what he said. Professor Murray was extremely biblical, extremely confessional, and so he, he affirmed 100% everything that the confession and catechism say about the means of grace and the ordinances that have been appointed and so on. <clears throat> but he had a point. He said this, at the end of the day, really, there's only one means of grace. At the end of the day, there's really only one means of grace. He's making a point. And that is the sight of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, coming to know Christ, right? Being able to see Christ. Now he would affirm the word brings that to us. The sacraments bring that to us. The prayer brings that to us. But it still reinforces the point here. Christ himself is the well. He's the water. And it is with joy that we partake of and draw up and drink and rejoice over Christ himself. The goal to which we are being brought is Christ. The means of salvation are the ordinances. The ordinances are made effectual by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Word and Spirit working always together. Well, what exactly does the Spirit do? Among other things, the Spirit takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. As we so often repeat from Gospel of John, the Spirit magnifies the Son. That's what He does. When we're preaching Christ, we're running in the vein that the Spirit works, through which the Spirit works, magnifying Christ. When He makes the Word efficacious and effectual to the hearts of, of souls, Well, what does this mean? It means that life without the well is life without joy. The well is Christ. The fountain is Christ. Life without the well is a life without joy. People can have happenstance type of happiness, a thrill, something that excites them, something that fleeting, passing, superficial, whatever, that tickles their fancy. That's not joy. Without the well, without Christ, we are left without joy. 
Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And so, my friends, we need to come to him. We need to remain with him. We need to be those who, who set up camp on the side of the well. I'm going to live all my days with my head in this well. I want to drink from the waters of salvation in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in the past, not just today, but every day and all my days. That's where joy is found. Because our joy is in him. Rejoice in the Lord. Not, not just rejoice in what the Lord does. Rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We can also say that all who prize Christ will prize his ordinances that bring us Christ. All who prize Christ will prize his ordinance. We're going to love the word in all of its forms, sung, read, preached, meditated upon, memorized, so on, public, private, family. We're going to love, we're going to love the sacraments. We're going to love the ordinance of prayer and so on. If we prize Christ, we'll prize his ordinances. My father, who was a minister, is a retired minister, used to say that the, the habitual absence of people from the public assembly, their lack of love for worship is a lack of love for the Lord. He reinforced this all the time to us in our heads. A lack of love for the worship is a lack of love for the Lord. A lack of priority for worship is a lack of priority for the Lord. The two are connected. We love Christ. We're going to love his ordinances. We're going to love where he is, where he's found, where we can see him, where he promises to be present with us. We love being in the place of joy. Therefore, with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And so here we see what is it that Christ's reign and Christ's gospel brings. Brings us at least these three things, comfort, salvation, and joy. And if the Lord spares us, we'll consider the rest next Sabbath. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, our everlasting Father, the God of glory, the one worthy of our worship, the God who is salvation, who bestows it plenteously, graciously, freely. O Lord, we rejoice in thy Son. We pray for his name to be exalted among us. Give, O Lord, that we would be led into this consolation and salvation and joy that is to be found in him. Help us, O Lord, to live out of this fountain and well in the Redeemer himself, and grant that it would be to his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll